Hi, I'm Cassie Calabrese here at ACR 2017 in San Diego, and I just came from the poster hall where I saw an interesting poster in the gout section by Ken Sag and all, um, looking at a tolerizing regimen of pegloticase uh, in the triple study. Pegloticase is a mammalian uh, recombinant uricase that's reserved for chronic gout patients that are refractory to traditional urate lowering therapies. And while we know it can drop your uric acid levels very quickly, um, patients develop anti-drug antibodies, patients have infusion reactions, anaphylaxis, and a lot of patients will have gout flares during the first couple months of treatment. And pharmacokinetic data has shown that uh, with the biweekly dosing, the drug levels might not be high enough during the two weeks, contributing to the immunogenicity. And that uh, pharmacokinetic data has also shown that possibly adding a biweekly infusion might improve this. So this entered the triple study uh, where they enrolled patients uh, with chronic gout who had uh, uric acid levels above and gave uh, one dose of pegloticase uh, in the middle of the biweekly dosing and they enrolled 50 patients and they looked at uh, serum uric acid levels as a primary outcome and they looked at um, infusion reactions and gout flares and they found that um, the incidence of gout flares was lower they found that, that only one patient of the 50 had an infusion reaction and it was mild, uh, but they found that about the same number of patients had a persistent uric acid lowering, about 44% uh, compared to low 40s in the registry, uh, the registry trials. So very interesting. Uh, we'll see what comes of this. If you want to hear more, go to roomnow.com. I'm Dr. David Bornstein. I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the George Washington University, Washington, D.C., and I'm partner at Arthritis and Rheumatism Associates in Washington and Maryland. It's been a very exciting time here at the American College of Rheumatology annual meeting in San Diego, and I've had interest in looking at the back pain abstracts. Though there are only a few, there are a couple that were of particular interest to me at this meeting. One was from actually Toulouse, France, which looked at the inflammatory changes that occur in MRI in people who have back pain, both in the anterior component of the spine as well as the posterior elements. And what they were looking at in these uh, majority who were female was looking to see if there were changes in MRI both in the anterior component, which is like the vertebral body, and whether the modic changes which occur there were associated with pain, and whether you also found the posterior elements, like the facet joints and the spinous process, whether they were associated with pain, and was there a differentiation? And lo and behold, the answer once again is that there is no specific correlation with what you see and what the patient complains of. So in fact, MRI can show you anatomy, but it does not show functional changes. So you once again need to think very carefully about what the patient complains of and what is on the MRI to see if rather actually correlates. Because if you just do blind MRIs, you will find changes. Other very interesting uh, abstract in the uh, back pain group was actually a nice study done by the University Hospital 
in the University of Oregon where they did a study of their patients, over 150, with diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis. It's a disease that rheumatologists know because many times it's confused with ankylosing spondylitis, but it is a disease we see. And they did a very nice group study of these individuals. And what it ends up is that, unfortunately, elderly men who are obese seem to be at greatest risk of developing this disease. What's interesting, however, is only about 63% ended up having back pain even though they had characteristic changes of DISH. So DISH may exist in a significant number of individuals who don't really have back pain. So it's something we need to think about in people who may have stiffness. Some of the other things that we find that we usually associate, like diabetes and hypertension and all, weren't necessarily components of what we see with DISH. So once again, I think when we think about this disease, we need to think about it with people who are older, men, who may be overweight, who may be particularly stiff, we should think about DISH. So look at these abstracts and I think you'll get a very good view of what's happening at the ACR annual meeting in regard to back pain. I'm Dr. David Bornstein. I'm a clinical professor of uh, rheumatology at the George Washington University Medical Center. And I'm also a partner at Arthritis and Rheumatism Associates in Washington, D.C. I was the uh, part of the abstract group that looked at the pain abstracts here at the meeting. And there are some very important abstracts that were presented here regarding pain and rheumatic diseases. And there's an overall theme that I think we, we can take away from this meeting. And that has to do, one, with an abstract that will be at the plenary session, which looks at central sensitization as part of upregulation of pain in some of our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. There was also another interesting uh, abstract that was presented looking at baricitinib as an, a Janus 1 and 2 inhibitor, which not only decreased rheumatoid arthritis activity like adalimumab, but also had an improvement in pain above what was shown in regard to control of disease. And whether this has something to do with the interferon effect of this medicine is something that's very interesting and may also play into this central sensitization uh, story. If we have to take something away from the uh, pain abstracts that were presented at this meeting, I would say the following, that our musculoskeletal pain is complicated, that it may in fact have nociceptive, neuropathic, and central sensitization components. So even though we control the inflammatory disease associated with these problems, if we don't take care of the central sensitization, we may be sure changing these patients in regard to their problem. And then, in, in regards to some of these other difficulties with patients, the central sensitization can have psychologic components to it. So not only do we need to think about the pharmacologic therapies that these patients need, but we also may need to think about the non-pharmacologic therapies that they need in regard to stress management, sleep 
uh, problems and sleep hygiene and those kind of components and exercise which really make an important component to really taking care of the whole pain picture. So I think as, an, as someone who's been very much interested in pain as a component of the diseases we take care of, I'm really pleased with the number of abstracts that were presented here at the ACR annual meeting, making our understanding of pain and our rheumatic diseases much more understandable. So my name's Erwin Lim, I'm a rheumatologist from Sydney, Australia. I just attended a wonderful lecture on checkpoint inhibitors by Dr. Bingham. Uh, checkpoint inhibitors are a wonderful new therapy for oncology, uh, where these new agents actually turn on the immune system to treat otherwise poorly treatable cancers. Why is it relevant for rheumatologists? Well, by turning on the immune system, you then end up having autoimmune diseases. And these diseases cause all sorts of rheumatic manifestations, including terribly uh, difficult to control inflammatory arthritis, uh, sicker symptoms, polymyalgia, uh, rheumatica, you name it, it seems to be able to um, create and occur. Why else is it important? It's poorly recognized at the moment, uh, but because these agents are going to be used more and more, we're all going to need to learn how to treat these diseases. Come back to room now. Dot com uh, for, for further information about ACR 17. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. I'm here at ACR 2017 in San Diego uh, with my best friend and mentor, Dr. Ted Pincus. I want to tell you that I started out in 1984. Ted was one of the first big-time guys to engage me, and he was so kind then. He's been kind for like the last 35 years, uh, and he's here to, to tell me about damage in rheumatoid arthritis. We, we have we've, over the years, we have lots of discussions about what we're not doing right, what we should do better, and uh, something that's come to your attention that you may come brought to my attention is this whole issue of damage. H how did this first come up? Well, thank you, Jack, and thanks for those kind words. The way it first came up was, as you know, in rheumatoid arthritis, we have seven core data set measures. One of them is Physician Global on a zero to 10 scale using a visual analog scale. And I noticed that sometimes I would have a patient who had no swollen joints and had a, a sedimentation rate that was perfectly normal. And yet, I felt uncomfortable to say they have a Physician Global of zero or even one when they had a pain score of eight and they had deformed joints. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, how am I going to account for this? And I decided what we have on our rheumetric scale, which I think I can show you here, sure. has the physician global, but also has three globals for inflammation, damage, mm -hmm. and distress, which is fibromyalgia and depression, which also impacts our patients many of our patients and can contribute to uh, management issues. So inflammation, damage, and distress is filled out by the physician? This is by the physician. Right. It's not easy to get the physician to do any work. I don't have to tell you, Jack. There's, and, there's, uh, there's not a muffin or a dollar yeah, attached right. to it? You know, the only that. thing you can count on is, is clicking the billing <laughs> right, statement. But, right. And you'll notice that we have, instead of a 10-centimeter line, we have 21 circles because we found that physicians 
at least in the exam room, who are rheumatologists, don't know how to use this advanced implement called the ruler. Uh -huh. So, and, and it's actually, actually easier because then you don't have to worry about if when you photocopy, when you photocopy 10 centimeters, sometimes right. it becomes 9.8 or 10.2. So where does this play? I mean, so you find it, well, this explains some of the issue, yeah. and now you can kind of quantify it. Well, how, this, how should this be playing out? Well, we are just beginning to do this, and we are still in the process of validating some of these concepts. But I can tell you, we have one poster here at the ACR meeting that says, in all of our diseases, which are thought to result from inflammation and which we think we treat only inflammation to control damage, that the scores for damage are higher than for inflammation. For example, in rheumatoid arthritis, it's about uh, 3 versus 2.2. And in uh, lupus, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, gout, polymyalgia rheumatica, the scores for damage are higher than inflammation. I think what this suggests is we should be measuring in some way, quantitating uh, damage and distress as well as inflammation. All of our measures traditionally uh, are directed to inflammation, but that may not be enough to figure out what's going on with our patients. So quantifying, identifying damage, you taught me a long time ago that hack predicts damage. Hack predicts mm. everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, so you got it, Jack. Uh, well, I, uh, you, you're a good student. Uh, I was uh, I was a young dog then. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The, the tricks came easy. Yeah. But the the question is, uh, is this being picked up by hack, or is this still something different it's, than hack? It's picked up by hack, but it's also picked up by DOS 28 and by CDI. So it's buried in because there. patient global is part of all these indices and a patient global of somebody with a lot of damage or a lot of fibromyalgia maybe six or seven and actually Jack that's one of the reasons you can't get into remission and even can't get an ACR 20 in a clinical trial which is probably more important in why we only see 60% ACR 20s in clinical trials than the target is not correct. And is this somewhat validated as well by the common practice observation that even though you've got a great drug, biologic, DMARD, mm. you still need to use Tylenol or, or well, prednisone in low doses or a, some non-steroidal or a, a actual narcotic medicines yeah. to manage the patients. That's true, except don't use narcotics. Absolutely, I agree. If, if you can We're help it, yeah. But, but that's right, that the patients, and we know that even in the best clinics in the world using any index we have, that we see fewer than 30% of people in remission sustained. And so that means there may be something about the, the measure that's picking up damage, even if the patient has no swollen joints and normal laboratory tests. So this is the rest of the equation. I think what you're doing is you're putting a spotlight on it so people pay more attention to it, and hopefully it'll lead to paying not just attention to it, that it's there, but we got to do something about this. Absolutely. And I will say also that using this scale and actually the RAPID-3 scale shows that osteoarthritis today is a more severe problem than rheumatoid arthritis in usual rheumatology care. When the patients come in, they're similar, but since we have such good treatments now for RA, the mean RAPID-3 score goes from 15 to 11 in RA over the next few months, and in OA it only goes from 15 to 13 and a half, and that becomes statistically significant and also clinically significant.
So now as an old dog, I'm still learning new tricks from the master. Well, That's it for thank you, now. Jack. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's ACR 2017. I'm here in San Diego with all my friends. I just got back from a nice, so this is what, Monday afternoon, 3 o'clock session on, on gout and hyperuricemia and a really interesting lecture by Dr. Michael Pillinger from NYU. Michael is sort of a leader in the gout field, and he did a 30 minutes on uh, the impact of uh, asymptomatic hyperuricemia. And it was a nice review. Um, and while he showed fairly impressive data that uh, elevated uric acid levels really is not a very good thing. In children, it leads to hypertension, and when you use urate-lowering therapy, hypertension goes away. When they gave those kids, same kids who had uh, hypertension and elevated uric acids, placebo, they didn't go away. Uh, but when the same kind of studies are done in adults, it's not there. Uh, he showed other really good data about uh, levels of uric acid in populations and the highest quartiles actually having higher risk of cardiovascular disease and poor cardiovascular outcomes. But again, there's an inconsistency to that. And then again, there are a number of different uh, lines of evidence to show the hazards imposed by hyperuricemia, yet the research does not yet show and prove that this is an independent risk factor for either hypertension or renal disease that in and of itself merits individual specific therapy. So such therapies or such studies are flawed by the fact that the prospective ones have too little data. The retrospective ones are flawed in design. The studies that are most convincing are done in kids but don't hold up in adults. So the bottom line is that there is not yet a full uh, and clear message about when asymptomatic hyperuricemia should be treated. Um, Michael sort of concluded by it should be treated when you think that the benefits would outweigh the potential hazards uh, of giving such therapy. Um, you know, I commented that uh, it used to be that I would only treat asymptomatic hyperuricemia at 14, and then it was maybe 12 or 11, and mainly to reduce the risk of uh, stones and, and nephrolithiasis and other chronic kidney disease. More recently, I view, I view it almost as a, a metabolic uh, syndrome cofactor, and so I am treating uh, asymptomatic hyperuricemia, especially in patients who I think may be at risk, and especially in patients who I think can safely take urate-lowering therapy. So that's the takeaway message from that nice session, again, run by Michael Pillinger. You could probably look at it at um, ACR Select online. Um, tune into room, room Now for more good news and videos. Hi, I'm Janet Pope. I'm here at Room Now, and I want to tell you some hashtag game changers. I looked at some posters on gout, and there's three important take-home messages. If a patient has gout, they are more apt to be admitted to hospital for congestive heart failure, including repeat admissions. And I think the take-home could be if they have gout, they might be on more diuretics like ferrosamide, but it might really be all the heavy burden of comorbidities they have. So we should really be conscious of that, look for gout, and treat it effectively. The second game changer is that patients with both gout and diabetes have more extra-articular, such as TOFI, and have more erosions. And I don't know what that means, but I thought that was a really interesting thing that can be explored because it's not something I could easily clinically put together. However, 
when you treat gout and diabetes, there are some new oral hypoglycemics that actually give glycosuria, and some of them will decrease purine metabolism, exacerbate gout, and then act more like allopurinol. The final game changer is that if your patient is not treated to target with gout, don't blame the patient, blame the doctor. The adherence of medications for gout medications such as uric acid lowering are actually far higher than the usual meds that have poor adherence such as antihypertensives and some of the other medications. So it's really the doctor that has to treat to target and encourage the patient to take the meds because they are filling their prescriptions. Thanks from Room Now. Hi, I'm Janet Pope coming to you from Room Now. I wanted to talk about something controversial at this meeting. So for the JAK inhibitors, it's been found in two of the JAKs uh, that there's increased VTE, venous thromboembolic events. So tofacitinib has a study where they've looked in their safety and haven't found it, but embaricitinib and UPA or upacitinib, they have some signals. And I'd like to compare it to what we found when TNFs first came out. And Fred Wolf's database, there was certainly concern about lymphoma. The first publication showed it, and the second one actually didn't show it. Now you see it, now you don't. I'm not sure what's going to happen, and I think this is a topic we'll all follow carefully. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope, and I'm helping out with Room Now, and I'm a newbie at tweeting. I actually have three followers now, which excites me. I've started a new area, which is hashtag game changers, and I'd like to tell you about one area that might be game changers. I've looked at a few abstracts at this meeting, and they were on what to do for pre-op of total hip or knee uh, plan joint replacements and usually rheumatoid arthritis. And what studies have seemed to show is that we always know steroids, corticosteroids, have an increased risk. But it looks like holding the biologic, such as a TNF inhibitor, is not at all necessary and doesn't increase the risk. And if you hold drugs too long and patients flare, then we have a big problem. There's another abstract that again demonstrates that prosthetic infections, um, how we are actually diagnosing them with respect to imaging hasn't changed. So if you suspect a joint replacement in the hardware of a prosthetic joint replacement, obviously orthopedics should be involved and you're probably going to look at a high CRP. So the game changer for me is I don't have to hold biologics for scheduled joint replacements at this point in time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ken Sag from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, today is an exciting day at the ACR, a lot of great posters and presentations on gout. Gout, as we know, is perhaps the most common inflammatory arthritis, affecting about 5% of adults, up to 8% of men in their later years get gout. Yet it's been one of the diseases that rheumatologists really have not embraced as actively as many other diseases. And within the gout arena, particularly in places like mine down in the south where we have a lot of people with obesity and comorbidities, we see really bad gout and we need some very effective therapies to manage that. One of the drugs that's really been fairly underutilized in the gout field is peglidocase. Peglidocase is a recombinant um, uricase, pegylated uricase that essentially is replacing what we're missing. We don't make uricase as human beings. And by providing this, uh, it can be quite effective in debulking the disease and dissolving TOFI and helping people with severe chronic refractory gout get better. 
Uh, we've had quite a bit of experience using this therapy in our very severe gout patients, and I would say that of all the patients I see, I have some of the most gratified patients who have had a good response to uricase, to, to peg, pegylated uricase. The problem with it is, is that many patients, if not most patients, over time will develop immunogenicity. The drug will lose its effectiveness due to the development of anti-peg and anti-peglidocase antibodies, and that'll be manifest by a rise in the serum urate levels that should indicate when it's time to stop the drug. We have a poster today at the meeting which looks at the idea of giving a tolerizing dose of peglidocase, an additional dose, early on. And the idea is, is that if you can induce immune tolerance to peglidocase, you may be able to use it longer. In our study, we were pleased to not see infusion reactions. We saw a, uh, only about half the patients getting flares of gout, which we thought seemed reasonably good. Uh, regrettably, 40-plus percent of patients were responders. We'd hoped that would have been a little higher, but uh, additional investigations and analyses of that data is underway. It does, though, set us up to think about other strategies, and we've heard anecdotally of clinicians using things like azathioprine, maybe methotrexate, in addition to the peglidocase as a way to block the development of these antibodies. And we're actually getting ready to start a study now looking at mycophenolate, mofetil, as an adjunct to the administration of peglidocase in a controlled uh, pilot study to see whether that may be effective in reducing the development of these uh, peg and peglidocase antibodies and hopefully allowing people to use the drug longer. There's going to be additional studies looking at imuran, azathioprine, other drugs as well. So we're hopeful that over time we'll find a way to use this drug even better. Good morning, everyone. I'm Olga Petrina, and I'm reporting from the ACR meeting in San Diego. This morning, I had the pleasure of moderating a great session where Dr. Mankat uh, presented uh, data on cardiovascular comorbidities in inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. Dr. Mankat is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic, and she also runs uh, a center for um, cardiovascular women's health. And uh, in this session, she emphasized on the importance of screening patients with autoimmune and inflammatory conditions for cardiovascular comorbidities. Apparently, patients with inflammatory conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, uh, ankylosing spondylitis are all at a higher risk of uh, both um, structural and functional cardiovascular disease and such complications as valvular dysfunction, uh, pericarditis and uh, pericardial effusions, as well as cardiovascular ischemic disease are very common. Uh, for unknown to us reason, in lupus patients, inflammatory markers don't tend to correlate with the risk of cardiovascular disease. And in a lot of RA patients, Framington risk scores are not really reliable. And there is no known reason for that. Um, it is known that patients uh, who are treated with uh, uh, biologic DMARDs have uh, better cardiovascular outcomes and lesser risk of cardiovascular disease as opposed to uh, non-biologic DMARD uh, therapy. Uh, Long-term chronic steroid use is uh, a negative factor uh, increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease again. And interestingly enough, um, uh, use of statins um, 
uh, tends to attenuate this long-term steroid effect. Uh, all in all, it was suggested that patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and other autoimmune conditions be screened for underlying cardiovascular disease, even if they don't have obvious and severe manifestations of the disease or signs suggestive of active disease, as early treatment and prevention uh, may have an important role in, in their outcomes. And uh, oftentimes, joint cardiology and rheumatology clinics are a great idea for this type of screening. Thank you. If you would like to know more, please follow us on roomnow.com and have a nice day. Hi, this is Paul Sufka coming to you live from uh, ACR 17 in San Diego. Uh, I just came out of a session that was talking about how physicians and scientists should can uh, manage their online reputation and uh, distribute their research so more people read it. Um, the first step uh, to do this is to have a main hub, so your blog or your research site where your things are published, and you're going to use all the other social networking tools like Twitter and Facebook and everything else uh, to uh, bring your people to your main hub. So important to have a main hub to bring people to. Second, uh, be aware that there are research and science specific um, social networks. So one that might be worth checking out is ResearchGate. And one that might surprise you is fairly uh, useful for scientists is actually LinkedIn. Uh, we think a lot that one is more of a business site, but scientists are big on there too. Um, and then last, make your information very easy to share. So. Uh, if you produce an infographic or something that can be shared and looked at graphically, it makes it easier for other people to distribute your content and then, again, bring it back to your, your main hub and uh, bring more attention to yourself. Um, so if you that, so uh, some good ways for scientists to get more people to read their articles. Uh, and for more information, go to Room Now. Hello, my name is Philip Meese. I'm here at the ACR meeting in San Diego. I'm a rheumatologist from Seattle, Washington. I'm very excited about one of the late breakers uh, that's being presented here, which is known as the Future 5 study. This is a study that is the largest that has been conducted in psoriatic arthritis using the drug secukinumab uh, in two different dosages and one dose arm without a load. As you may know, uh, secukinumab is approved 300 milligrams or 150 milligrams given five weekly doses and then monthly thereafter. And in this study uh, in which we were testing to see if it would inhibit radiographic progression, uh, there was also a, a quote, no load dose uh, that was given at baseline and monthly. So what did we learn? Well, not a surprise, we learned that giving secukinumab did inhibit evidence of progressive structural damage in joints as measured by x-ray. So that was a key outcome from the study. It also confirmed previously known results in terms of very high ACR responses, for example, ACR20 at the primary endpoint of week 16 of about 63%, which is very high, uh, and correspondingly high ACR 50, 70 uh, responses, and very high skin responses. We also saw significant inhibition of 
dactylitis and enthesitis uh, at week 16. If we turn to what we learned about loading versus not loading, we learned that the load is better. There were numerically higher responses uh, with a, the 300 milligram and 150 milligram doses when given a load uh, than with no load. And the, and the responses were faster. We also saw differences in enthesitis and dactylitis response. So my take home message is that it's better to follow uh, the current uh, recommended dosing of giving a load uh, and then in patients with moderate to severe psoriasis giving 300 milligrams, 150 is also an option because that did show, like the 300 milligram dose, evidence of inhibition of radiographic progression, all supporting uh, the effectiveness of secukinumab in treating psoriatic arthritis with this IL-17A inhibitor. So my name's Ian Bruce, I'm Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Manchester, and I'm here at the ACR in San Diego 2017, and this is a RheumNow podcast. Um, I've been looking at a lot of posters in lupus and vasculitis, and there's been a number of posters this year from the Toronto group looking at a rare adverse event in patients with prolonged antimalarial therapy, uh, cardiac toxicity. Um, First of all, it's important to emphasize that these are rare, uncommon events, um, but they seem to present either as a dysrhythmia or with cardiac failure, um, shortness of breath, etc. Um, what you see is a, a hypertrophic, restrictive type of cardiomyopathy, and several of these patients have actually had endomyocardial biopsies done showing evacuated um, myopathy, which would be typical of um, antimalarial toxicity. Several have also been diagnosed in, with highly suggestive patterns on cardiac MR. I think one of the key take-home messages from this is that when you think about patients who are on very long-term uh, anti-malarial therapy, that if they have a cardiac issue, whether that's a dysrhythmia, heart failure, etc., obviously ischemic heart disease, atherosclerotic heart disease is much more common in this population. But one should always bear in mind the possibility that this could be related to anti-malarial drugs and speak to the cardiologist about doing the precise investigations that would help reveal this if it was there. Of note within the posters that they showed, a number of these patients actually were free of epicardial coronary heart disease, which raises more the possibility that this may have been related to anti-malarial drugs. The good news in some of these situations was that when you withdraw the drug, there is a slow, gradual improvement in cardiac function over time, um, but that can take at least two years to reverse. Sadly, in one or two patients, they um, succumb to sepsis or other issues as well. So that's important, but I think the balance of risk means that antimalarial drugs still remain overwhelmingly beneficial in the vast majority of patients with SLE, and therefore, because of the many benefits that they have, we should continue to use these. But we just need to pay uh, respect and attention to this drug, um, particularly on long-term cumulative use. This is um, on behalf of Room Now, and Room Now will be here for the rest of the week. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Paul Sufka coming to you live from uh, ACR 17 in San Diego. 
Uh, I just came out of a session that was talking about how physicians and scientists should can uh, manage their online reputation and uh, distribute their research so more people read it. Um, the first step uh, to do this is to have a main hub, so your blog or your research site where your things are published, and you're going to use all the other social networking tools like Twitter and Facebook and everything else uh, to uh, bring your people to your main hub. So important to have a main hub to bring people to. Second, uh, be aware that there are research and science specific um, social networks. So one that might be worth checking out is ResearchGate. And one that might surprise you is fairly uh, useful for scientists is actually LinkedIn. Uh, we think a lot that one is more of a business site, but scientists are big on there too. Um, and then last, make your information very easy to share. So uh, if you produce an infographic or something that can be shared and looked at graphically, it makes it easier for other people to distribute your content. And then again, bring it back to your, your main hub and uh, bring more attention to yourself. Um, so if you that, so. Uh, some good ways for scientists to get more people to read their articles. Uh, and for more information, go to Room Now. This is Catherine Dow from uh, San Diego ACR 2017 conference. I just want to share with you some interesting updates that I've learned today. Uh, first of all, FDA updates from this morning. Um, something you have to know about. Do not prescribe tramadol or codeine to children or pregnant women. Now this isn't just a box warning. This is a contraindication. This is stronger than a box warning. And the FDA issued a letter and a warning back in April 2017. They are saying it again today. Do not do that. And the reason why is because there are some individuals who have CYP2D6. This is a gene that, that causes hypermetabolism of these kind of compounds. And particularly in children, um, if they have too much of this uh, type of metabolite, which, you know, codeine obviously metabolizes to morphine, uh, they can go into respiratory distress as well as have death. Um, where we find this to be a big problem are patients like children who undergo tonsillectomies and they require uh, narcotics to control their pain, or mothers who are breastfeeding and what happens is that they breastfeed and then um, had taken their hydrocodone or their codeine or their tramadol and it goes into the milk and the baby gets them. So again, strong warnings um, and contraindications from the FDA. Do not prescribe tramadol or codeine products to patients who are pregnant and children under the age of 18. All right, second thing. So I attended a lecture by Virginia Pasquale. As you know, she's this great immunologist, and she spoke about precision medicine. And previously, um, we've known about the interferon signature in lupus. In fact, as a fellow, um, I had done research in microarray analysis looking at the interferon signature in lupus. Well, take home points from her study. Number one, interferon signatures are not unique to lupus. In fact, you can find it in type 1 diabetes. You can find it in scleroderma. You can find it in Sjogren's, and also a subset of rheumatoid arthritis patients. And the subset of rheumatoid arthritis patients who have it actually respond to TNF inhibitors. The other thing that is a take-home message is that she has defined seven types of lupus based on their genotypes. Three different kinds of signature besides, um, so which are interferon signature, the plasma plasma blast signature, as well as the neutrophil signature. And she found that the plasma blast and the neutrophil signature may actually be more of an important player for lupus. So basically, in the future, we can define precision medicine, so treating patients 
with um, targeted therapy that would correspond to their gene type as something of the wave of the future. And we are currently on its threshold. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Come visit us on our website and read my blogs.